She's a good girl. Loves Mama, loves Jesus, and America too. She's a good girl. Crazy about Elvis, loves horses, and a boyfriend too. It's a long day living in Reseda. There's a freeway running through the yard, and I'm a bad boy 'cause I don't even miss her. I'm a bad boy for breaking her heart. Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is me, your host, Will. I hope you are well. I hope life is treating you, I don't know, reasonably well. It, it can't be anything more than that right now. Unless, of course, you've got something that you're not telling me about. In which case, I think you should, and I want to feel that way. Um, so I'm currently hunkered down in a freezing cold Suffolk snowstorm. <laughs> I mean, it's really coming down out there. And uh, I feel a little bit like a, a kind of like a, a cheap a pound shop Eskimo. As in, I don't know what to do with snow except look at it and fall over in it. And, and maybe make a cheap, crappy snowman, if possible. Anyway, this is part two of the Tom Petty deep dive. And we have Warren Zanes on. That's correct. Warren Zanes, the rock biographer and uh, musical journalist. He's fantastic. You might have seen him in the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers running down a dream documentary, which is, that's kind of where I, I first was made aware of him. He's absolutely, you know, he's full on. He's a, he's a, he's a dude. He's currently ch- uh, teaching or tutoring or lecturing rather at um, NYU, uh, obviously music studies. So he's, he's a, he was a very busy man, hard to uh, tie down. So when he did when we did get get going, it was originally just going to be a 45 minute chat, but we went a little bit over. So I think we bonded. I think we did. I think we had a really good bond. And I think that was simply because of my love of the old TP, the old Tom Petty. But if you haven't already listened to the first part of this, part one with Chris McKittrick, I suggest you do. Because basically what we did in that one was a massive overview of the histrionics, the linear... The, the line from start to finish of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And this is more of a, a deep dive into personal interactions with Tom. So he wrote um, the biography, Tom Petty, that Warren Zanes did. And this is, it's, it's deeper, I suppose. It's more personal. It's still, the biography obviously still takes the journey of the band and Tom and what have you. But it, it's, it's more personal, I think. So you, you'll... Um, You'll get a lot from this, and it's quite emotional. We also go into Warren's own um, meetings and time time with Tom, which is pretty cool and pretty poignant, and I have to say quite moving at times. And that, that's just the common thread, I think, when we're talking about Tom Petty these days, because we figure out that he's such an amazing guy, was an amazing man, touched a lot of people, and wrote such compelling music and really... I mean, the standard of music was second to none. So we, we do we, we go all over the place, and it's and it's great fun. It's a great chat. But yeah, um, other than that, I think I'm just going to leave it. I'm going. Part three will be coming up relatively soon. That will well, that'll be with Paul Zollo, and I'm super excited to bring you that one. But in the meantime, if you haven't already, maybe check out my my conversation with Steve Ferroni, the drummer from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which I was overjoyed to get. I mean, that was just one of the great interviews, I think, on the, of the podcast. A little time we've been going, about four years. But I mean, it was politics. In case you're confused by that, it was politics. But it, it, it's, it's slowly changed into something more entertaining and fun. Let's face it. Anyway, enough of my yakking. In, enjoy this, this conversation. 
I know you will. I'll see you on Twitter, at LimehousePod. And maybe, if you've got the guts, if you've got the nerve, I'll see you on Instagram. Okay? Bye-bye now. Band previously went to, to before so you did you know your solo stuff. Yeah, um, my uh, my 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 life as a songwriter and a recording artist has been much quieter than a lot of the other things that I've done. In part because uh, I made that choice. Uh, on uh, on some level, uh, you know, the people who do this full time, uh, let's assume we're talking about a world outside of pandemic. Right. They really live it. They go out and they play shows, they go on tour and it's a pretty hard life. And the moment I had kids, uh, there was a shift for me where and there's a melancholy to the shift because i love going out and playing music i loved going on tour but i also saw that i couldn't maintain the connection to my kids and Mm. i had done enough in the way of artist interviews that i could see that it was a painful spot in a lot of artists lives when they had kids and they weren't as present as they hoped to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very practical on some level. Yeah. No, I get it's like mother nature, not mother nature, but like some, something inherent, uh, innately, uh, like within you, this, it's uh, like giving you a message, sending you a message. And that takes time, doesn't it? It doesn't just come one day. Maybe it's like just little things, keep niggling and and reminding you this change is coming. Yeah, here's one thing that made it easy for me to make that choice is that nothing was really happening for me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've I've done a few books working with Garth Brooks. Now, Garth Brooks, the biggest selling artist in the history, you know, solo artist in the history of recording music. Yeah. he, at a certain point in his career, still right up at the top, stepped away to go raise his daughters in Oklahoma. Now, right. that's a different decision because wow. he did yeah. have something going on. Uh, but, yeah. I, but I think there's that biological imperative. And he, he kind of made a deal with Trisha Yearwood along the lines of, we'll come back to Nashville when the last of these girls is out of high school. And that's what they did. And he mostly, he wasn't working. He was going to soccer games. So that's real interesting to me. You don't see a lot of that. It's very hard to turn away from the riches and the glory. Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite, that's quite interesting and i mean if we're because i know we've, we've you know that that's how I've, I've i've learned about you over the years is um the running down the dream documentary which you were on uh, about tom petty and the heartbreakers and and more recently the the biography but in that you do talk about petty's uh, family and 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 how he um that that struggle with with maintaining family life um and and gigging and recording and then they got a record that he built a recording studio right in his in his house and it kind of like just the family dynamic was messed around a bit but but going back to you i mean like because you you're in the del fuegos right for like um a period of time yeah and that was like five years so i, I yeah. joined when i was 17 and you know was left the band around like 23 i i think yeah jesus that's so young warren that 17 like you're still like trying to fathom what an erection is and like you're like i had actually figured that out uh (laughs) that's a huge part of the problem i figured it out and i I needed to find an outlet for it my brother asked me to join his band i go this is perfect (laughs) on one level it was perfect and yeah. On another, yeah, at that age, you are still developing. 
in mm. in so many ways. But I was already a bit of a wild animal, just by, by virtue of the way I was raised. And so then I was just a wild animal, um, yeah, released from my have a heart trap, and you know, out <laughs> on the road. Man, like, what, what's it like being in a band 17? And, and it worked, man, because, you know, Del Fuego's like, you can't find much of the, of the music on, like, Spotify or what have you, um, but you have to dig a bit deeper. But it, it was a band that really took off, though. Like, you got some tidy support slots. I mean, you supported the Heartbreakers, so it's like... Yeah, I mean, we had, like? Some, we had some very interesting experiences, but we didn't walk away with the mansion on the hill. Uh, no, but as teenagers and and then guys in our early twenties, uh, we were we were out on the road. We were making records for a major label. We were mm. getting to you know meet and sometimes know our musical heroes. To me, it was the most of the degrees that I got. Though there was no official diploma and no graduation ceremony. It was the most important degree. I feel even today I'm processing that experience and it helps me to understand the musicians who I talk to, the musicians who I write about, the musicians yeah. I interview in the documentary context. It's really mm -hmm. given me a lot to work with. Was it uh, psychologically the kind of thing that I want for my own sons? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Are you sure? I mean, like some of those experiences, uh, they're kind of forever. They're like gifts forever, right? They, you, 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 you can hold. I mean, I suppose like what you've you've been through and, and you do speak about that um I've, i feel like i've learned a lot about you what a great biography really does is is actually expose quite a bit about the author as much as the artist and i think i learned quite a bit about you in that book um well there's quite a lot of melancholy in it yeah well, yeah i mean well let me get back to the to the melancholy after but first i i had the you know, it was, it was really like a fine line I needed to ride. This is this was a book about Tom Petty, um, mm. but I had had these experiences of, you know, crossing paths with him that mm. happened. It was they were well placed, so that I could come in briefly, and, uh, you know, in a in a kind of moderated way to tell my story about being a fan of his and being a fan who had these experiences of interaction. So, you know, I was 18 when, when I first met him, uh, still in my teens when, you know, he invited us out to his house, uh, into my, my twenties when uh, we went on the road with them. And then I, you know, I kind of thought I was out of music and I was just an academic when I came yeah. back into his life. And yeah. each time I had this opportunity to get to know him a little bit better, uh, he had a real generosity. Like he, was, he was a guy who I feel like he always remembered everything he had himself been given by the generation that preceded him and by his peers. And he extended a lot of that generosity to me, uh, certainly to the, the Del Fuegos, the band that I was in. And mm -hmm. I thought by bringing myself in as a character in that biography, I was also showing that, you know, that this guy, Tom Petty, was a rock and roll star. He didn't need me. Uh, but he made space for me and he taught me a lot. And he also, by the end, really empowered me in the sense of setting me off on this adventure of writing his biography. And, you know, that is uh, certainly a gift I will never, ever forget. And, and I continue to learn from him, you know, not just through the music, but through the experiences he gave me. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a, 
the way you can speak like that about it just it it does illustrate just how much he um has affected you you know and i i think that that's a rare a rare thing in in great people that they really do have a way of just cutting through the bullshit and really speaking to the to the point within you i suppose within the point of i don't know yeah. your soul i suppose well, two two souls meeting essentially it was, well he had a kind of personal confidence uh that didn't you know manifest itself as a kind of ego uh, but a personal confidence that uh he could spot bullshit when it was you know coming across the threshold and uh he was confident enough to call it out so you know conversations didn't have a lot of fat on them um yeah I and, love that. Yeah. And it and it and it made me want to find some of that confidence in my own life. And yeah. You know, I th- I think it I think it did. Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson have those those three rules for living. Um and and one of them is to, you know, spot the bullshitters. And I'm and I'm paraphrasing and you you can look it up yeah, in words. Yeah. Um, you know, one of them is be tender, but another is like spot the bullshit and um, get away from it. Mm. And it's, you know, it can take you years to arrive at something that simple. And Petty had a real uh, gift for seeing this stuff, not condemning it, not judging it, but just like, I want to I move past it and get to the good stuff. And a lot of the good stuff for him was just great rock and roll. For sure. Yeah. I, what about, I mean, like bullshit is, um, it's quite an interesting subject actually. Like how, how do you think like in your life you've dealt with bullshit and like how often have you got mired in it and stuck in it and uh, like in a bad way, but in, you know, conversely when you've been stuck in it and dealt with it in a positive way, like, well, let me say this first. Um, I'm not just on the receiving end of bullshit. I'm also a practitioner. So <laughs> I've, I've dispensed plenty of it. Uh, and I'd say the thing that I've learned in life is when I have dispensed the bullshit, I ultimately see like, wow, that didn't do anybody any good, me included. Right. But it takes a certain amount of living to arrive at that. I think Petty was um, a great songwriter because I think he came to that insight intuitively, but also early. So one of the things that I always went to, uh, went after in his songs, I think a lot of people did, was just this truth factor. Uh, You know, there's, there's no point in writing the song if that's not what it's harboring, is some kind of truth. And, you know, bullshit is the enemy of truth. So he made it his business to, like, allow enough vulnerability, uh, yet maintain that confidence that he could speak to his own fears, speak to his own uh, worries. And he did it in Mm. such a way that, this wide listenership could identify with the songs and go, man, that's how I worry. You know, those are my fears. And by virtue of listening to him share in that way, there's this sense of like, we can get through these things in life. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And it's not done in a way that's gratuitous either. It's, it's you know, it's the odd line here, the odd line there. You know, he never sort of pours it all out like verse after verse. It's sort of like, you know, like in Wildflowers or something. It's like most of the things that I worry about never happen anyway. And then it's, oh, OK, wow, that's that's just a grain of just wonder there. And I can that's coming from Tom. So it, it maybe, maybe life's okay after all. Maybe yeah. what I'm feeling is okay. It's valid. Yeah. You know? yeah. He could, he could do it in a line. It never felt pedantic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of economy, it didn't feel pedantic. Like he was talking down to us and he never lost the humor. 
So to have all those things in one song, I just don't think there are too many guys who can practice at that level. I always say he's in the Hank Williams, Buddy Holly territory, which is to me the most elevated. And and they're big catalogs, very consistent catalogs. I see him on that level. I mean, yeah, just looking at all the rest, like his, um, you know, the, additional music to wildflowers has been added recently for those listening that don't know what that is it's just like un unbelievable i've had yeah. i'm listening to god, harry green I've had that on repeat Her- harry oh green my god uh that is you can learn a lot about tom petty from from that song it, yeah i mean what did when you first heard that what i mean i don't know whether you first heard that literally like a few weeks ago for the first time or, or you've known that for a while but known the song for a while but what did what did you feel about that song when you first heard it i could just see tom petty in gainesville and you know he he wasn't a guy who had a comfortable relationship with school uh i don't think he ever stepped foot on a, a field set aside for sporting events <laughs> you know <laughs> no. harry green is this complicated character it's a it's not tom petty but there was some yeah. point of connection between tom petty the speaker and the song and this harry green so across a few barriers they identified and i think it was music that allowed that harry green picks up the guitar and he's got a little something um God, so, it's so, so sad, right? i see yeah yeah but i see tom petty remembering this character who died too young and going mm. there was something in that guy like he's not what you thought at first and that's the way we have to view people in the world that like give them a chance because they you may not agree with the world they live in you may not agree with what they represent but give them a chance for their humanity to leak through and it might leak through around music. It's a place where that kind of thing happens. So yeah. I thought it was a really complicated song, but the first time I heard it, you know, Tom was still alive because Wildflowers oh, was many years in the making. And the first time I was asked to do anything around it was I started some liner notes for the original version when, when Tom was overseeing it. And um, so they, gave me all these tracks. So I had my uh, joy with wildflowers kind of, kind of privately. Uh, yeah. I did, I t- did talk with Tom. We did like, you know, a separate from the book interview about it. And, um, you know, it was, it was cool to listen to it. My, my one thing that I went away after hearing all the tracks was, well, I never would have put together the same collection because some of the songs were like, Oh, I never would have left that one off. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah. You know, and I wouldn't have put, you know, I'm not going to say which ones I would not put on, but I think well, there was so much material that every fan would have created a different wildflowers. Well, somewhere under heaven, I cannot, I cannot understand how that did not make that album. Agreed. I, 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 yeah it's astonishing song when i first heard that i'm driving along we're driving in the countryside to my um in-laws man and the sun's setting behind us and i'm not shitting you that's the first time i heard it and it was like being 10 again hearing tom payton heartbreakers for the first time and it is a song and a half and it didn't make the cut yeah i'm how i don't know i mean he claimed to have completely forgotten about it um (laughs) Which th- that that was like hard to believe. I'm not going to question it, but like, yeah. really, there are some lines in there that just again, there's there's some kind of emotional vulnerability that he's capable of that never drifts into sentimentality. Uh, mm. It doesn't it doesn't lose its strength. Like we sometimes associate vulnerability with losing strength and it's like no no those are two different things so he maintains that that and uh you know it's a it's a quality he had as a writer and it's in so much of his material no i quite agree i i think it's um it's an interesting thing because in your in the um biography you know you do um you go into such detail um 
it's really it's it's funny because it's not a super super long book there's not it's not like thick like a dickensian style biography but for some reason i don't know how you do it but it, it does feel dense like there's maybe it's the economy of words but how you know it's how you use them and stuff but well, the i mean i think he, he gave me a lot of gifts and the people in his circle gave me a lot of gifts in the interviews by giving me some scenes and i think a good scene can cover a large chunk of time so a writer can either give you every beat in that entire period of time or they can give you a scene that best represents that period of time but allows the book some brevity uh because i i look at the big fat books and i go man i don't think i got one of those in me and uh as a reader i've only have i got a few in me dude can i just speak to that i i love i really want to learn more about keith moon but dear boy is too fucking much it's huge man and i love i love read maybe i'll audiobook it whilst i'm working maybe i will who knows but that is a beast that's a doorstopper yeah um well, and you, it's and you know you know sorry. michael ondace who wrote the english patient he did a book called coming through slaughter and it's and it's a fiction uh he did another around the same time called notebooks of billy the kid uh okay, yeah. coming through slaughter is about buddy bolden the cornet player in new orleans and it's about the kind of jazz world in new orleans when louis armstrong would have been a boy i think um bloody hell okay but it's very slim it's very very short but when i walked away from that book i felt like i just read something that was twice as thick as the bible um because the scenes he were he was giving me were so thick uh but it hap it went down like a poem that i could understand yeah you know uh, yeah I, and i and so i don't think you need to um i don't think you need to break the readers back same time there are some big fat books that I, I wouldn't want them to be a page shorter so i'm i'm of two minds but i do think um you know tom petty given what he did to teach us about brevity he was not the guy for a book that was as tall as your youngest child you know <laughs> yeah for sure oh my god I, I I wish that we were videoing this actually because the smile on my face when you started talking about uh, the, that Louis Armstrong book, the, the small the, like for me I didn't even know what a novella was until like maybe six years ago and I started reading novellas like um like crazy and and it and really I don't know why I, I think there is the there's an art in short story. Well, that is it's oh, wow you know. Well, my my uh, my older son turned. 18 this year and mm. uh 18 is the year where you don't they don't get uh a lot of cool new stuff they get the symbolic gifts so i have two, okay. I have two briefcases and he got one of those briefcases but then he got the the book that made me really turn into a reader and it was an important book to me that my mother gave me and it sat on my shelf for years can i can i guess yeah I want two guesses. Yeah. I mean, I'm 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 going to go a tree grows in Brooklyn, but I think maybe that's too dense. But then uh maybe I I'll just go standard catcher in the rye. Nope. No, there you go. <laughs> Three novellas. Okay. Jim Harrison's Legends of the Fall. No, I just watched that film the other day. I fucking love that film. Yeah, so you got you got to read the novellas. So Jim Harrison did a few collections of novellas, and it's a form yeah. that not too many novelists practice. So he he did it more than others, and it's you know it's every every form has a story that fits it right. So sometimes yeah. they become novels, sometimes they just remain novellas. They're not short stories. They're not novels. Uh, but he, I think, is a great practitioner of the form, and it, and it hooked me. And I, then I read all of Jim Harrison's work, but it, it gave the novella a special place. And I think um, 
it's like the literary, if, if Tom Petty were to be writing fiction, I think he would write some novellas. Yeah, and he loves film noir as well, right? So that kind of like fits in for me as well. Like anybody yeah. who likes film noir and a, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Classic movies and stuff. When you go on Tom Petty's bus, uh, Turner Classic Movies was always playing. It was just on. And it wasn't when you started talking, it wasn't going to go off. <laughs> you know if you're taping an interview it was you know it every now and then point to an actor and say their name and, and say they always they did some great movies oh man it's so sad warren that this guy's not around anymore it's so part of me is like convinced that uh, i yeah obviously I, i'm convinced that i would have somehow stumbled across him and maybe got five minutes of an interview with him for a podcast if maybe I'd sold my soul or something. But it's just, it's so weird now because I'm touching base with a few of the heartbreakers here and there and, and people such as yourself. And and it's just, it's sad. It's, it, I, I'm, yeah, you've got to celebrate someone's life, but fundamentally it is a bit sad, you know. I did, I did an interview this year with the station and they played a, a snippet from an interview I'd done when the book came out. And Tom was still alive. And I was saying that I think the most exciting part of his career might be as he hits 70 and goes into his 70s because he always made it his business to make the best possible record he could make. He wasn't going to make a record if it didn't have a shot at being his best. Like, I, as yeah. a fan, I knew that. But I also felt like a lot of artists kind of diminished as they got older and I, and I wasn't seeing that with him and I wanted a rock and roller to get to that later stage of life and sing to me from there. And yeah. I'm like, he's the guy who could do this. And I, and I had put my chips on that and I was waiting for those records. And that's a selfish take on, you know, a, a man's life. But as a fan, that was a big part of it. It's like I was excited for the music that was yet yeah. to come because I knew he would have insight that would matter to me as a man getting older in the world. And I wanted that. And I wanted also him to prove that rock and roll had that elasticity, that it could go there and still be rock and roll. I thought he could prove that. So, yeah. There, there are different kinds of melancholy associated with that loss. Um, there are layers to it. But for, for me also, he was just a very generous man and very kind. And mm. uh, if I said something that he thought was a, a, a jackass of an idea, he'd tell me. But if he thought there was something to it, he'd consider it. And, and to sit in a room and watch your hero consider some idea that you had i feel like boy everybody should be so lucky christ yeah tell me about it i had that with ringo Starr a few times when i was um i used to work as a groundsman for him down in um uh down in cranley in surrey for a couple of years and i met i met a whole bloody loads of times and everything but we used to have the occasional chat and i i used to just make i, I used to make him laugh fuck me that was unbelievable you know I mean, he wasn't like a superhero of mine right but and but i made it my mission to talk to tom to to talk about tom petty with him and i said oh you were in the i won't back down video weren't you mr starkey and uh, he was like oh yeah you know i remember oh yeah i remember that yeah what was i doing like you know i can remember the day i think you know it's like oh god but it's um wow. it's a treat and a half but the but speaking about um your time with him because you I think the hardest part because I heard you on a podcast years and years and years not years maybe five years ago fuck it whatever and the, this story went in and it stayed in my brain but I completely lost all like who who was talking about it and what have you but it's when you met you were invited into the room with um George and Jeff maybe and Tom um and and you're but you you tell the story but it's funny because you t retell it in the book and um and I was suddenly like, oh, God, yes. Thank God. I don't have to go completely insane. I remember who this is now, this story. But, yeah. Well, it was um, 
I can't, I'm terrible with years, but it was the, a Christmas party and it was at the Petty's house and they were in Beverly Hills renting uh, Charo's house, the, the South American star who was big on like American TV. Uh, <laughs> and I remember in the living room, there were some Picasso sketches <laughs> that, were, okay, that were Charo's because they were renting it furnished. Uh, but when we toured with them, they were living in Encino and then there was the arson attempt on the house. So this, yeah. this rental in Beverly Hills is where they went after that. So it was that following Christmas after we'd been on tour with them. And, um, the Petties gave me a Beatles magazine from 1965, the year I was born. And, um, I, you know, I was, I was at the party and there were some celebrity types, but then there was a murmur that George Harrison was there and you didn't see him. You just heard, you know, there are celebrities and then there are Beatles, as you know, from your yeah. Ringo experience. And I, I'm, I have never collected much at all. Like I don't have photos of me with the people I've interviewed. I, my artifacts, I can count on one hand, but mm -hmm. I went to Jane Petty, Tom's and wife, and I said, Jane, you guys gave me this magazine, and I know George Harrison is somewhere in this building, and I feel like I should get it signed. And she said, follow me. She took me down this hallway and opened up the door to Tom's office and just kind of like, hurled me into this room so it almost looked like I had run into it and then the door <laughs> closes behind me and I'm, I've got this magazine held in two hands and it's Tom, Mike Campbell, George Harrison, Jeff Lynn and they're playing music but this kid just ran in the room and they all stop and George is sitting behind Tom's desk and he looks at me and says it's Brian Jones back from the dead and he starts playing a song about a dandy and he's kind of making fun of me and uh the my heroes are, are all having a laugh at my expense and i'm just gripping this magazine in two sweaty hands and uh, george does this whole song and uh he gets to the end and he's like reaches out to take the magazine from me and then he signs it for every beetle so I've got this magazine because the Beatles learned one another's signatures, you know, during the Beatlemania right. years, they had to sign yeah. so much stuff. They could do one another's signatures. So he took a Sharpie and just covered this magazine. <laughs> uh, that is an artifact I still have. And then oh, man. Petty could see my, you know, my pain standing there <laughs> clutching this thing. And uh, he said, it's cool. You know, you can stay, uh, you know, sit, sit down. And I was like, no, I can't stay. <laughs> I just got out of there. This room is too big for me, right? It's like kind of that feeling of just being a little bit. But the way you write about that, um, Warren, is, is in the book, again, it kind of chimes in with the the melancholy of the book. And we're we're smiling laughing about this but that's one way of telling it the other way is it is it's quite a profound feeling like um that i think i can uh attest to and i think a lot of people when they're in a situation when they feel they're they're in the room but they're not kind of in the room and it, and it affects them so much of their ambition so much of their goals in life that they know maybe they're never going to quite reach and or I don't maybe I'm not quite right there but I I felt that's my interpretation I felt like a little bit of sadness um well, there that I can speak to. Well one one perspective of that situation is uh you know Tom Petty he was in a lot of amazing rooms you know whether it was with Del Shannon or Johnny Cash or Bob Dylan, uh, or George Harrison. And he was there as a collaborator. Uh, and I've met people in the music industry who are very ambitious 
and they'll claw their way into rooms like that. And I never saw any inkling of Petty being that kind of guy. He was always asked to come into the room. And it's a really dignified example of if your art can't get you in there, maybe you shouldn't be there. And in that room, I was just there to get a couple signatures. Yeah. I wasn't there to play music, and that's what those guys were doing. And yeah. you know, it's, you know, I'm not sure if it all happened and it was it was me today at this age, if I'd stay. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, it, but it's always better if you're invited in. True. But I mean, and also you got the wonderful advantage of then, late, you know, those those stages that you spoke about um, being with Tom uh, over the years and what have you. So you kind of got that yeah massive factor i think i maybe i'm speaking from a point of view where holy shit if that was me and i just had this like a week or something of befriending tom and some of his entourage and then that was it forever i'd be a bit more heartbroken but it's like yeah you definitely got to kind of make up for that by sitting in a freaking tour bus with him and watching jim jim cagney in the background shooting people you know yeah i know he 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 gave me a lot in that respect. Um, but all the other thing that was great about being in that room was just seeing him at what was, I think, without a doubt, one of the happiest times in his life. Like a, a lot of unexpecteds were happening for him. And, you know, mm. and it was, it was the end of that Dylan tour and, meeting George and Jeff Lynn being in the loop and things just happening that, man, you, you, no one, even, even at that level would dream quite that hard. And right. there it was right. like all those guys were having some of the biggest hits of their careers. Uh, the traveling Wilburys, I mean, super groups, are, they're a terrible idea in general. But this one was the <laughs> exception to the rule. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but there was a lightness. There was yeah. a creative surge. There were friendships that were just glued together by laughter. Yeah. Uh, friendship's the biggest one. Yeah. Oh. Friend, friendship's the biggest one because I feel like when when you depict, uh, well, you you know, you really do that well. You bring out that the love that George and Tom have for one another when Tom and George first met, like, didn't George like put his arm, give him a hug and go, we're going to be friends forever or something mad. Yeah. It's the, the way I remember it. I was just saying this to someone the other day. It, it was along the lines of, you know, George and the way Petty said this, it would just like, you know, kind of melt your heart. Um, but he said, George, like just put his arm around him and said, uh, I'm, in your life now, Tommy. And, yeah. you know, like, wow, what a way to put it. I, you know, I, I did interviews for uh, Scorsese's George Harrison documentary. And mm -hmm. it was an amazing point later on where I really got to think about George Harrison. And the biggest takeaways for me were first about how important meditation was in George's life. It's like, we all kind of knew that, but I really caught the message. The bigger one was about friendship. George Harrison was a master of friendship. And to weave the two together, if he felt like a friendship was unfolding, he would send transcendental meditation teachers to your house because he felt oh, no. like your friendship really had to include that if it was going to evolve. And so oh, the, a couple people describe like there's a knock at the door and they're like, uh, hello. And George <laughs> hasn't told them that they're coming. And it's like, um, George Harrison, uh, uh, asked us to come and, um, do some transcendental meditation training. Uh, <laughs> But he, he cultivated, there's another story that didn't make the movie, but it was about a friend who was, you know, not a famous guy. And was it a kind of, uh, 
it hit a ceiling in his career, but had aspirations beyond that. And George yeah. showed up at his house one day with 150,000 pounds in a bag and, and said, now you have no excuses. And it's like, oh my God, I was just so moved by it. Like, wow. He wanted to do these things for the people he considered friends. So when he right. said, I'm in your life now, Tommy, there was a lot involved in that. Like, George Harrison was going to be in his life and he expected things back and he knew what he was going to give. But it was the practice. I used to think of friendship as something that happened sometimes when you walk out the door and it reoriented my thinking where I saw friendship as something you cultivate and you feed and you go after and you consciously choose to do those things. Yeah, it's an interesting one, actually, Warren, because like uh, friendship is something that we all take for granted on a massive scale. But when you do really to meet a soul like my my i've got a friend called uh, tristan and he and i have we we had some beautiful moments together like going on country walks and and really talking like really fucking talking which blokes don't do that much but when you do it's it's really it's two souls connecting and it's and it's so it's so important and I don't have a lot of that in my life. Like I don't really, I just generally don't. I have like maybe one friend, Tristan, that I have that connection with. So to be in a position where you have someone like George, you know, Tom who has like these, these, I mean, they're like pillars that understand what friendship is. People like that, they're monuments, aren't they? Really? Yeah. But I don't, th I think George was an exception. I think there I think there is a fairly high level of loneliness both in the world and among those who experience success at high levels. I just Can I just can I just say also it's kind of fucking weird how people do like um they they are lazy but they're with with friendship. Like friendship's an interesting one because yeah we take it for granted but I blokes are just terrible at it and also we, yeah. we get to a certain age and we just shut off like we just stop going well he's a stranger i'm going to treat him like that now and that's it i can't i mean like i'm too old for new friends you know it's it's so weird we, we i'm an open book i try to let everyone in i've got to i'm a you know i interview people yeah um but but um it's just kind of weird how people kind of shut down on new friendships well i i'll say this um because I can, I, it's fair me to out myself that I'm, you know, almost 27 years in recovery. Uh, okay. And so I, I am actively involved in uh, 12 step meetings and uh, 27 years. That's pretty damn good going, my friend. Congratulations. It, it's a long time. Uh, but it, it's, uh, I was only there because I, I really had to be there. You know, I was out to stop dying. Uh, Fuck. And okay. so, and I mean, I think that that's it. Most everybody who gets to the point of asking for help because no one, you, they, you know, there's a saying, you don't come into AA on a winning streak. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that definitely applied to me. <laughs> But in order to go through this process of recovery, you need the help of others. And mm. you are going, if you're going to stick with it and stay sober, uh, you're going to learn a little bit of, about friendship because you need other yeah. people. You need to hear their story. You need to see them hearing your own. And so I, yeah. I think I got a little uh, extra from that. And it's almost like, George Harrison did this intuitively. I, w I was trained in it. He, I think the Beatle experience was just, you know, George had a, a saying uh, uh, like about the fans, like you gave us your hearts, but we gave you our nervous systems. Like being a Beatle was really hard. You know, and nobody's going to like the second a Beatle says, hey, it's hard being me. Nobody wants to hear that. 
<laughs> so I think he found ways, meditation being one of them, friendship yeah. being another, to yeah. build a lot of quality into a life that had a frenetic aspect to it. Definitely. I mean, like, yeah, I I've, I've, I've used to maintain George Harrison's uh, beech trees, uh, the silver birch, sorry, the silver birches that he gave uh, Ringo. Uh, in on and his on his thingy and I, I I used to love that I always used to get a moment you know some really cool moments this and I was there at Ringo seventieth and stuff and met some insanely awesome people but like definitely kind of working there was there was always that kind of element of like nah it's okay here there's a good vibe here you know like people talk about ley lines in in Glastonbury you know down in the west country of England and shit like that like the druids and stuff. And I, I believe in that to a degree. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's whimsical either just to say it just because, oh, I'm spiritual. Like, you know, therefore there's another added depth to me, which a lot of people tend to do. I just do. And it is a commitment and a journey. When you talk about meditation, for example, that's not easy. Meditation isn't fucking easy. That's, that's hard work. You yeah. Know? So, but how long, how long have you got left, Warren? Because we've got uh, 47 minutes. So, um, so you go through and you edit out afterwards? No, I, no, this will just be straight like this. I mean, I'm if because we were going to talk about because I messed up. We were going to talk about your music, and I'm what I wanted to do is do like pick out three songs of yours, okay. like do like ten second or twenty second hit of the song, and then we could give give, well, give the listener we, an we idea. Don't, of it. We don't have to. I mean, if you if it it might be more cohesive to to do petty stuff. Um, yeah, you know, your call. I wouldn't be offended. Um, and then maybe do like a, a, a Warren's a Warren music corner another time. Maybe. Yeah, I'm always game for that. Uh, yeah, that would yeah. that would be cool because you you've got so much music, so that would be quite cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how, how's um? I, I mean, are you are you cool for like another five minutes or something to wrap it up? Yeah, I, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. yeah no, I part today's a teaching day. Uh, what do you, what do you, are you right? Do you teach writing, singing, songwriting? Uh, I, I teach at, at NYU, New York University, okay. and yeah. um, do a class called 14 Songs. And yeah. I, I co teach it in the fall and then do it by myself in the spring. <clears throat> and each week is a different song slash recording. So, so this yeah. week is Aretha Franklin's Respect. Uh, <laughs> You know, Jesus. And, and we, <laughs> we kind of go into the context of it. So, oh you know, as a, for instance, we're, we're, we're taking, going off of Peter Gronick's sweet soul music book, you know, sweeter. Peter is a, is a guy that I, I adore and, yeah. and I'm happy to call him a friend. Uh, but in that book, he says, you know, he's kind of talking what soul music is and, he says Motown is is not soul music. I consider that something different. It's more in the pop arena. It, you know, it wasn't a judgment. It was just more of like defining the category. And then within the book, he says that James Brown is like almost his own category. Like of all of all the soul artists, like James is this thing apart. So in this class today, we're going to look at at Aretha at the time mm -hmm. of her early Atlantic records, James Brown around the, you know, the time of Papa's got a brand new bag and the Supremes in early Motown and go like, let's, let's draw some distinctions. And, and, you know, what is their significance and what is their significance to the history of race in America? Cause it plays out very differently. And in a way, Aretha embodies the most, pure version of of soul music so we want to ask the question if so why and a big part of it is that even as a, a young woman she was uh, a kind of black aristocrat by virtue of you know her father's life as the leader of a church in detroit you know she was yeah. she was special in that community and uh, yeah she she saw performance, right? Sorry? She saw performance. She saw her dad performing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she was yeah. folded into church performance. Uh, yeah. so, you know, she was originally signed to Columbia, and it was a faltering, 
career that didn't really go anywhere. And what the magic at Atlantic was that Jerry Wexler kind of let her lead her own sessions just by getting her back at the piano. And that allowed the church to really come out in that sound. And then it was a more sparse production with those yeah. you know, great Southern soul bands that had already been cutting with Wilson Pickett. So it had more kind of edge than the Columbia. Yeah. But then, but then in the class, we, we want to tie it to changes in American life. And, uh, can I come in and sit on this class, please? My I'm my my mouth is literally watering. It, Fuck me! It, I am so jealous of those kids. It, oh my god! It's pretty fun, but you do run into young people who don't know who Bob Dylan is. So uh, uh, there is yeah. there is frustration because uh, you want them to love Bob. You want them to love Aretha. You want them to see that this music yeah. could do things in society that uh you know a politician couldn't like it, yeah. it has a special power its power is limited but it has a mm. special power yeah for sure i wish i'd spoken to you a couple of years a few years ago and this this podcast a little was way more politically focused you know i i do believe a lot in um in music being uh capturing uh, lightning in a bottle in terms of you know political change and what have you around that time we've got a band over here called idols um which they're, they're kind of um doing a little bit of that political commentary but then you know uh, irish punk bands at the turn of like the late 70s and what have you um or ramones in 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 your city you know and it's like Oh, you could go on and on, right? I yeah. Just, it's well. It's when 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 Biden uh, stepped up the other night to claim his victory. Uh, after he, it was very brief, but after he finished, uh, they played "I Won't Back Down." Yeah, and yeah. Now that's not explicitly political, but it has been pulled into the political arena more than once and you know i got a couple texts pretty quickly like oh my god biden just played i won't back down and uh <laughs> the, and, I, and i really thought about it then like man i wish petty could have seen some of this stuff because the, yeah. the celebration of his career really it's it started with his death he was beloved but people got way more vocal about it after he died. And it's a shame that he didn't feel that rush of love. Do you, you, you want to know a really personal story, Warren? I don't know if I'll put this in the podcast because it's so personal and kind of weird. Not weird, but I, when Tom died, uh, we were driving back from my sister-in-law's and um, my wife, uh, we, her and I were trying for a baby at the time. And we... Um, you know, we had the sex plan for that night and my sister texts me going, have you heard about Tom Petty? And I was driving and I was literally just round the corner and I in the car and I, oh my God, like it, 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 at first it was just like, oh, Tom Petty's dead. And I was trying to like stay cool because I was driving or something. I don't know. I thought I could just go and handle it. And we stopped the car, parked up and I just lost it, completely lost it. And like, I, it's, it's, it was a lot of people felt that when Bowie died, right? And then, like you know, I couldn't, I couldn't perform for three days. <laughs> I was absolutely mortified for three days, and my wife still berates me for that. So can, I, can I just say, if you don't include that in the podcast, you can't include anything I said. <laughs> That's just okay, deal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just like it was. It was hard. I was talking on another show, another podcast the other day, uh, guys in Detroit, and we were talking about, and I didn't, I didn't get that story in, and I was determined to, but we just didn't, because it, because there's so many things you could talk about with Tom Betty. But the, where, where were you when you found out Tom had died, passed away? Uh, I was, um, I was at home, and I was having a really, really shitty day. Yeah, uh, and it was the day before uh, my oldest son's birthday, uh, and um, reminding you how old you're getting. <laughs> yeah, and it was 
uh, somebody sent a text that said something like, tell me that it isn't so. And uh, I just knew. And, really? Yeah. And um, then uh, I was inundated and, you know, requests started coming in. And I just called my agent and I said, I, I don't want to do anything uh, with these requests. And uh, my agent said, you know, Warren, uh, this, is, this is the time for the family and the band to be mourning. And quite honestly, this is time for you to work. Uh, you, as, okay. as his biographer, and, and he chose you to do the job, um, you, you need to go to work. And he said, I'll, I'll do air traffic control for you, and we'll pick out the opportunities that are, are the ones you should do um, that will make the most sense to representing uh, him in, in the best way. And that's what he did, man. He just he had somebody in his office uh, create the schedule, and for the next 30 yeah. days, I just only did – interviews so it was very intense and it was very emotional and he was a hundred percent right like this is when you go to work and it was a great great lesson man i love my my agent for that like that was a yeah very both mature and uh soulful response it's interesting isn't it because for me that for me that speaks like you're taking one for the team there big time because it's it's not it's it's easy you know it's easy to say well but yeah but you've got to be on radio and tv it's like the most morbid fucked up way of looking at that it's like that is you know particularly how much that man meant to you you know it's, it's brutal yeah no and i was so glad i did it uh and, it, and it's like it's not separate from mourning it was like appropriate uh for me and um yeah it was then then after three days you know we agreed like that that was it you know stop and uh then that first quiet comes and it's that first quiet where you you feel it and, and you know it was just very it's very abstract uh because uh you know, again, I was just thinking about what's what's coming next and looking mm. forward to it. And yeah. uh, so, but then, but then there was all this. You know, it, 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 this it seemed like the Tom Petty celebration went on for a really long time. And that was like, yeah. wow! It was, yeah, that was that part was amazing. That's that speaks about his music, who he was, right? The counter, the I don't know what you call it, the counter reaction, I suppose, to the to the loss, uh, you know, and the grief. It, it, it's like the well, this is fundamentally what he was about, and this is his music, and my God, we're going to celebrate. It's like you know, but I don't know. It's still so messed up. Like especially reading your book about his how he went was just fucking awful like I mean, you know his his uh, coming out with the um drug addiction in your in your in your book his use of heroin what have you and but then you know how he died in the years since his passing and how much more in-depth um discovery there's been about it and it's heartbreaking it's just fucking awful it's, it's uh, hard, hard to understand um and hmm. you know i i i definitely stopped short of um, making any, you know, offering my take on it, uh, you know. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, That's why I loved your book. Yeah, yeah. There's no fucking judgment in your book ever. It's just fan. It's just perfect. It's not gratuitous. Yeah, I mean, I that that part was important to me. Um, but yeah, it's uh, oof. It, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, well, look, man, look, thank you so much for your time, Warren. And just the sun's come out there and it touched the... Is that a dog? Was that a, is that a doggy? 
Or a cat. I can't. <laughs> Look, it's got a little coat on. Man, do you know the funniest, the best thing about doing this is since lockdown is people's pets. Like I was speaking to Bob Harris the other day. We, oh, yeah. we, had, we, went, we went for about an hour and 20 minutes for the first 15 minutes was just talking about his cats and then my dogs, you know, it's so funny. You know, the so totally funny. different view of people's worlds. For sure, yeah. definitely. It's cool, it's cool. But um, yeah, let, let's let's hook up and do a um, a Warren, Warren, Warren yeah. Zane music corner kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that would um, be and, fun. And it would be, be really cool to actually get... Um, bring out maybe one of your uh, lectures and we could talk about one of that because you've, you've written about Aretha, haven't you? Uh, I just wrote a little thing when she died that was in Rolling Stone, just like a personal yeah. remembrance of a show that I did with her on the bill. It'd be cool to like talk about your music and then maybe with some of your um, lectures because I, I, yeah. I, I seriously, I was like, I was, I just felt like I've never been so jealous in all my life. I wish I was 18 and NYU, whatever, you know, it's, but yeah, it's a, it's a great thinking ground for me. You know, I always, I always come out of each class going, oh yeah, you know, I mean, that's how university classrooms should function is everybody should come out the other side knowing more professor included and it does happen that way yeah read stoner the book stoner you'd love it stoner yeah by john williams you would you would shit yourself if you love novellas it's slightly longer it's slightly oh i know that book yeah yeah you have read it yeah i don't think i've got a copy of it but i know it because it came out in that i can't remember is which series it is but vintage yeah 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 okay man, we'll try reach out to me again and we'll uh we'll do another but great to meet you you too dude and, look after uh, yourself yeah good luck all right take care <laughs> cheers mate <laughs>